This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or a homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by BrewGuru, a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Everybody. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get them to drop knowledge into your little head. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience, and I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. All right, on today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss the beer life as we always do because hey we need an excuse to drink a beer and then it's off to the lab where we're going to talk about our next experiment this one's big we're super excited about it. the igors are super excited about it uh and we really can't wait to bring you guys some results on this one uh then it's two interviews this week the first is going to be with the folks of whirlpool's w labs uh which is dedicated to exploring interesting niche appliances like their recently launched uh Indiegogo Vessi fermentation slash serving vessel slash weird all-in-one sort of device, and Denny's uh, Denny's talking to them about it. And then it's off on another Denny adventure as he talks to Russell Everett of Bainbridge Brewing up in Bainbridge Island, uh, Washington. Yeah, that was a great trip, man. 
Uh, no round of Ask Denny and Drew this week because we are getting ready for our all Q&A episode coming up next time around. Episode 24 is going to be uh, all Q&A. And uh, if you have questions, send them right now to podcast at experimentalbrew.com and we'll uh, talk to them on the show. The, what we think are three of the coolest questions, we'll actually give you a call and uh, you'll get to join us here on the show to talk to us live about your questions. A uh, little reminder here, you can support us on Patreon. Go to experimentalbrew.com and look for the Patreon logo and click on it. Now, what do we do with that money? Well, we do use it to fund some of our experiments in the podcast, but mainly what we do is we give it to a charity. And the charity for the second half of this year is the Children's Tumor Foundation. The foundation supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. It's a great cause, and we hope that you'll join us in supporting them. Other ways you can support the podcast when you're at our website, you can click on the AHA logo to join the American Homebrewers Association and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine, or you can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine logo to subscribe to Brew Your Own. A portion of the proceeds from that comes back to us and helps us run the podcast. So, Drew, uh, I hear we have some uh, email about our staling experiment. Yeah, so if you guys remember last episode, we talked about the, the great stalling experiment. We had one result from one of our Igors basically showing that crushed grains after a month didn't seem to have a detectable impact, at least consistently. And uh, we put out a call there saying, hey, you know, look, we want to test this again. Uh, and obviously, because this is a big homebrew bugaboo, right? Oh, no, don't let your grains sit if they're crushed. They'll, they'll make terrible beer. So one listener, uh, Ryan Rupp, uh, actually emailed us. And he had said that he had just found out about the podcast and discovered it via a friend and read it. And they, he's, <laughs> here's what he says. Someone was asking about staleness and if they can still use the grains. Well, guys, I may have just set the record for using old grains. How does two years old sound? That, that's right. I found an extract kit in my basement that was two years old. It was a Christmas gift, and unfortunately, life just got in the way, as it usually does. Well, I made it two weeks ago just on a whim, used the barest of equipment as most of it was still at my co-brewer's house. I mean, I had a boil pot, star sand, a carboy with an airlock, and siphon tubing, and that was it. No hydrometer, no wart chiller, no fermentation chamber, nada. Hell, I even started the siphon with my mouth into the carboy. I was trying to kill this beer as I wasn't expecting much of, out of it. It went amazingly well. A week in primary, <laughs> a week in secondary, carbonated in a keg at 13 PSI in a few days. Boom, drinkable beer. Uh, it says the only concession I made to attempting this was using new yeast that I purchased from a local homebrew shop. Uh, everything else was in the kit was all original, and I did ask. That was the malt extract, the grains, and the hops, all <laughs> all two years old. Uh, he said, as an addendum, I did try something new. I didn't chill my work quickly at all. I just dumped it straight into the carboy to let it cool overnight and pitched my yeast in the morning before I left for work. I actually did the just did that again this morning for a Scottish ale I just finished up last night. I needed to start a new batch as my keg is already empty. It proved quite popular in the neighborhood. Anyway, cheers, and here's some more data for you guys. I'm always up for more experience, experimenting. I have well done it for a living. 
So, and Ryan, uh, Ryan's title is uh, as a senior research technician at a genome institute. So, yes, Ryan is a man with an actual science pedigree. Wow. But, yeah, and I asked, you know, I was like, well, so what sort of kit was this? And uh, it turns out it was an extract with grains uh, kit for an Irish red ale. So, there you go. Wow. Two, two years old and two years old on a beer that's very malt forward. You know, um. One one thing that gives me a bit of pause, and because I'm always worried about everything, is that okay. I hope I hope that Ryan cooled that wort a little bit at least before he poured it into the carboy, because putting a uh, hot wort into a carboy can be a recipe uh, for disaster. Yeah, or 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 at the very least, filled the carboy with the top up water. Yeah, dumped right. the wort in there, and then, yeah, you know, it got that cooling. Yeah, I would imagine if you dumped boiling hot wort straight into a glass carboy, it would be a recipe for Boom. badness. Yeah, so right. don't do that. But right. there you go. There's a there's a nice little data point from a listener about two year two year old uh, grains. <laughs> Doesn't get much and, more extreme than that, huh? Yeah, and and that was in uh, I'm I'm guessing uh, you know a, a more human environment. And we did also hear from another listener, uh, John Ozaka. I probably just totally destroyed your name, and I'm terribly sorry for it it says uh hey guys i just listened to your recent podcast episode which discussed the effects of using old pre-grusher grain and had a related experience i thought you might find interesting i had a bag of pre-grush grain that i bought to make a cream ale but which i never used the bag sat around for over 10 months i couldn't bring myself to use it but couldn't seem to throw it away either that's because you're a home brewer and home brewers are notoriously cheap uh <laughs> The, the grain was made up of 50% two row and 50% pilsner malt with some flaked rice in the mix as well. So we got a lot of absorptive things in there. Uh, I'd heard Denny mention that he had no negative effects using old pre-grush grain. And so out of curiosity, I tasted the grain. It was still crunchy and did not have any negative flavors. So I decided I'd tag on a second beer to a recent brew day and see what happened. Much to my surprise, the beer was one of the best beers I've ever brewed, <laughs> at least it. on a technical level. There were certainly no off flavors, and the beer was much enjoyed by all who tried it. In fact, for an ale, the beer, the beer was fairly indistinguishable from a lager and was clear, carbed, and in perfect condition in less than two weeks. I was completely shocked that 10-month-old pre-crushed grain could produce a beer this clean. This was on grain that had been stored at fluctuating room temperatures in New Zealand, wow. which, is an which is an incredibly humid climate, yeah. and which sat there through virtually all four seasons of the year. The bag was zip-tied, but I opened at least a month before using the grain to taste it, which would have let in additional air and moisture. Uh, to give additional con context, I am a beer writer and have served as a judge in homebrew competitions, and as such have at least some degree of an educated palate, or at least I'd like to think. So he uh, posted also a link to a, a, a blog post they put up about this. And yeah, there you go. 10 months. That is just too cool, man. Uh, I love hearing that. that uh, you know, uh, once again, uh, questioning the conventional wisdom pays off, huh? Yeah, I know. And is this a recommended technique? No. No, no, no. No. But the, the truth is, is that I think we get a lot of listeners and a lot of new brewers and a lot of home brewers out there in general who really really obsess and stress out over the freshness of the grain and in this one case we had a beer that was two years old and a malt forward style seemed to come out pretty good uh we also had a cream ale here 10 months old and a cream ale should be very susceptible to the freshness right. of the grain and uh john's re reporting back uh, great results now of course these are 
singleton results without any sort of blind comparison, yada, yada, yada. But in this particular case, we'll take the anecdotes as sort of a, a good pointer that maybe what we want to do is do another round of this, but get some people who are really forward thinking and get them to do this, you know, for a period of 10 months or something like that, just to really push the, the envelope. You know, man, if we could just like come up with a time machine, yeah, then we could like go back and crush grains five years ago, but brew with them next week. There you go. Hey. <laughs> I mean, at some at some point in time in my life before I moved into this house, I probably had grain that was that was that old and crushed. <laughs> but apparently, apparently, I threw it out in, a, in an attempt to be well, not move it. Yeah, right. Okay, so the takeaway is, uh, if you have old grain laying around, what the heck? Give it a taste. If it seems halfway decent. Give it a try. You got nothing to lose but a little bit of your time, and you might end up with a great batch of beer instead of grain in your compost. There you go. Yeah, it may may just be possible for you to save the money that you spent. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to head over to the pub, have a couple beers, and talk about the beer life. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in a Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. Hey, we're back, and we are sitting here in the pub having a couple beers and discussing what's going on in the beer life. Uh, What are you drinking this week, Drew? Well, I think given uh, last week's video, which we're going to talk about uh, shortly, uh, I have no other choice, but I'm sitting here drinking one of my experimental saisons, uh, particularly in this case, the probably my favorite of the bunch, which was the saison experimental with the Yeast Bay's saison blend number two. Yeah, I uh, when I watched your video, uh, I was ready for one of those it's, just by the time you got done describing it. It's so damn good. <laughs> Well, uh, and I just got back from Hop and Brew School at YCH Hops up in Yakima, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, while I was there, I picked up what I consider to be probably one of the finest IPAs I've ever had a chance to put into my mouth. And that is Top Cutter from Bale Breaker Brewing in Yakima, Washington. The brewery is not only owned by a family that owns a 1,500-acre hop farm. The brewery actually sits in the middle of hop field number 41. So when you stop by the tap room, uh, you are sitting right there uh, in the middle of a hop field. It is definitely one of the tastiest IPAs I have ever had. The hop flavor and aroma is remarkable and to me it proves that you don't need to make a cloudy ipa to get the same kind of uh, hop flavor and aroma that people up in the northeast are getting there may be other reasons that you like it cloudy 
but in terms of hop flavor and aroma, uh, it doesn't have to be like that to be massive. See, now the fact that you're having a beer in the middle of a hop farm, it makes me wonder if there's such a thing as a, a hop contact high. <laughs> and two, if it's actually possible for a brewery in the middle of a hop field to ever actually make a multi style that you don't stick your nose up to and go, huh, smells like hops. Well, you know, as far as I know, these guys only make three beers. They make the Top Cutter. They make one called Bottom Cutter, which um, is uh, a double IPA. Uh, And both Top Cutter and and Bottom Cutter refer to the machines that go through the hop fields and uh, Mm -hmm. cut the strings that the binds are growing on. And they make a pale ale called, believe it or not, Field 41, since they're sitting in the middle of Field 41. And I don't think that they make anything else, and I don't think that they have any desire to make anything else. And you know what? That No, that is not true. You know, now that I think about it, when we were in the tap room, I had a rye pale ale. Uh, They had a few other beers on tap, but I can't remember anything that was malt forward. And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't really expect them to do something like that. I mean, when you own a hop farm and you can have the freshest, best hops that uh, anybody can get their hands on, that seems like what you should be doing. Yeah, you just got to be careful about using your own product. <laughs> well, hey, let's let's talk a little hop school. Okay, let's do talk a little hop school. This was my uh, my third year at hop school. Uh, it's, it's just such a great experience, I, I can hardly find words to describe it. It's run by YCH Hops in Yakima, the company that was formerly called Hop Union. They merged with uh, one of their business partners, Yakima Chief. So that's where the YCH comes from. It is two and a half days of learning about hops and drinking really great beers. The basic format is that they have two sessions, one for commercial brewers that goes Tuesday and Wednesday, and another one for home brewers that runs on Thursday and Friday. Wednesday night, there's a big party barbecue out at one of the hop farms uh, with the uh, both the groups, uh, kind of like a, a crossover party. Hop school starts bright and early at 8 a.m., which when you think about the amount of beer that people are consuming is a truly remarkable thing. Um, the first morning, at least, people show up bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to go. You get uh, seminars and learning experiences from about 8 till noon. You eat lunch, you hop on to buses, and you go out and you visit like uh, the plants where YCH makes hop pellets and hop extract. And you visit the hop farms and get to watch them uh, processing the hops and bringing them in because the, the school is coordinated to start with the beginning of the hop harvest. Um, Gary Glass, Matt Bowling from the AHA, and I at one point were standing next to a pile of about 30,000 pounds of hops, and that was only about like half a day's harvest uh, from one farm. So it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Lots of amazing information about hop breeding, hop growing. Uh, there's information for people who are looking to start their own breweries. There's information uh, like my seminar that's aimed more just strictly at home brewers. It is, it is a truly, truly fun and educational experience. If you uh, think you'd like to go next year, the uh, registration will open up, I think, on June 5th. 
And then uh, the school itself is the last week of August when the hops start coming in. And uh, hopefully one of these days uh, you'll be able to make it too, man. Well, that would be nice, but that, that's going to take some time. But I did want to note, I thought it was funny that on Facebook, you know, I started to get uh, responses and getting tagged in a photo where Denny's up there talking in front of people at a whole experience dedicated to the idea of hops. And what's on the slide behind him? But my Saison guacamole recipe, which is not exactly a hop forward beer. No, and you know, and to tell you the truth, um, I, I didn't talk about hops a whole lot. Although I did, uh, I did discuss our results uh, of finding that hops do have diastatic power and blew a bunch of people's minds with that. But no, I was, uh, you know, it was a homebrewer session, so I was just more talking about. Uh, about how to think about your homebrew and how to have more fun while you're making it. Uh, so next year, I'm thinking that uh, my, my seminar is going to be Hop Like an All-Star. So you can take that however you want. There you go. Uh, uh, and now, now we just got to figure out how to get Wilt Chamberlain into the hops. Man, that's a <laughs> bad joke. That's really a bad <laughs> joke. <laughs> now I'm ashamed. As, right. as you should be. So tell me what's going on with the laws in California now. Well, all right. So, you know, we've been talking a little bit about homebrew law, and obviously there's some new things coming up in different states. But California actually has our bill, AB 2172 is, I think, the number. Uh, it is in front of the governor. It passed by the California Assembly and the California State Senate with nary a nay vote. So it was a unanimous vote. It is now there, and we are waiting for Governor Brown to actually sign it. Uh, so the AHA has been putting out calls. I put out some calls. Uh, the California Homebrewers Association, which is really the group that's pushing this bill, has put out calls. But if you get a chance, make sure that you email or mail yeah, a letter to the governor's office gotcha. to say, hey, look, we'd like to be able to have homebrew meetings and homebrew competitions in licensed establishments. And what we mean by that is breweries and pubs and bars. So there are some restrictions to it, as there always will be. But for the most part, it's a really good law, and it's something that we want to have happen. Uh, but this is this next level of fight. And the one other thing I think is really amusing, I'm not sure this is correct, but I'm fairly certain it's correct. Uh, I have to do some more research, and if I'm wrong, somebody out there on the internet will tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, I know. But I don't think I'm wrong about this. I think Jerry Brown is the most homebrew-friendly governor ever to exist in America. Because he's the one who signed into law the ability for California to have legal homebrew. He is the one who's, and then many years later, signed in a couple of different laws related to charities and homebrew charities. And now he's signing into, uh, into law, hopefully, this one. So that will make four or five different laws that Jerry Brown himself has signed into legality for homebrewing. Wow. Well, so no matter what you think of Jerry Brown, he deserves some props for that, huh? Go, go, homebrew brown. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, oh, my, oh, my God. That's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to brew an American brown ale. for uh, just. There you go. Well, you know what? One of my next beers up is my American brown ale. So we'll uh, we'll dedicate it to him, huh? Yeah, well, and now i got to figure out the whole theme's got to be moonbeam brown. <laughs> <laughs> for, yeah. for, for, the kids, for the kids out there who don't know this, uh, Jerry Brown in his first term as California state governor, was sort of hippie-ish and out there and had the nickname of Governor Moonbeam. So, yeah, it's got to be Moonbeam Brown. Oh, man, I can't, I can't wait to hear about this one. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also some, like, not-so-great news, huh? 
Uh, yeah, well, so back into the wonderful world of selling it out. We'll try to be quick on this one, because this one actually hurts. Yeah, it does. Uh, to me. Uh, and that's the fact that as we were recording this uh, just a couple days ago, uh, Browery Bostils, the producers of Triple Carmelite, Quark, and Deus, you know, the champagne beer, uh, the thing that actually kind of got me started in my writing career, uh, announced that they were selling 100% interest to Anheuser-Busch InBev. Now, I like those three beers. I know, man. A lot. It's a bummer. I know, but I got to stick, stick with my rules. But this is also, at the same time, it's a return to uh, ABI's roots of buying up Belgian breweries. Because uh, Interbrew, I think that was the original name, Interbrew, uh, was notorious for going around and buying various Belgian breweries. They bought Hoogarten. Uh, they obviously have Stella Artois, and then they got merged with the Brazilian company Ambev, so they became that, and then they bought Anheuser-Busch and became ABI. So they are kind of returning back to the roots and buying up a Belgian brewery. Uh, nobody's no, nobody knows what the price is, but of course it's a hefty one. Yeah, I'm sure. And so good job on the Bostils family for uh, getting an incredible amount of cash after having the business in their family since, I think, the 1700s or something. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, hey, Europe, they have history. Yeah. Um, my my big worry is, at least with past acquisitions that a- ABI has done in Belgium, they've done a real number on destroying breweries and consolidating brewing efforts into uh, one area. So that's the reason why, like, Hoogarten is no longer brewed in Hoogarten. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of shudder to think that... At some point, Bostils will all be brewed in Leuven and all in a massive plant. Yeah, yeah. Um, you but, know, all, all we can do is wait and see, but uh, it, it has the potential to be a bummer. It does. Well, and then, so at the same time this happened, you know, ABI's been doing their whole thing about sending craft brewers that they bought here in the U.S. out on, like, you know, press tours to... Uh, you know, go flog the, the, the banner of, hey, look, we're still craft. We're still good people. Um, and, you know, like, they also got a, a, an article published in Serious Eats, basically, where, oh, what are the benefits to selling out? Why do you want to do this? And, you know, it's one of those things where you read it and you're like, yeah, okay, I'm not entirely certain I agree with your stuff. But then, Modern Times stepped up, and the uh, <laughs> owners of Modern Times stepped up and dropped a rebuttal article. That was essentially just a, a mic drop about, you know, responding to all of ABI's claims about what are the benefits of selling out. And really, we'll link to it, but you should totally read it because at the end of it, he's like, hey, look, congratulations, you got your money. You're done. But all the other reasons that you're giving are kind of a giant pile of poo. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. Uh, you know, that it's like, they're trying to rationalize the sellouts, uh, and n- nothing makes any sense, you know? Uh, and, and I think that the Modern Times article did a great job of pointing out the nonsense. Well, I mean, look, if you're, if you're going to sell out, uh, like I said, uh, or like I've said multiple times, I don't have any problems with people selling their companies because it's hard work and you're, you're more than within your rights to you know, gain, garner a profit out of it. Uh, but at the same time, you don't get to do that and then still try and say, hey, look, we're still just the same. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm. Time I'm bu- marches on. Yeah. Acquisitions march on. 
Let's march on out of this pub and go do some Just what work. I was going to say, man. I'm, I'm bummed out enough. Let's grab our beers, uh, get off of these hard bar stools, and walk over to the library and sit in those comfy chairs and talk about some yeast genetics, huh? Yeah, let's do it. All right, we'll be right back. Well, we've wandered over here to the library. We are sitting in these nice, comfy chairs by the fireplace, finishing up our beers, and uh, we're going to talk about a great article that was just published by one of the people in our book, Homebrew All-Stars, Lars Marius Garshall, and he has been diving into the realm of yeast genetics. Yeah, and well, and particularly all about the, I think it's Kavik or, or Kevik or Kvik. Yeah, I have yeah. No, I have no idea how you pronounce it. Yeah, I've never heard anybody say it. So, uh, total flyer on that one. Uh, but Lars is famous for going around and basically ga- grabbing up all these yeast cultures, grabbing up all the knowledge about how people have been brewing traditional styles, and finally uh, got a invite from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology uh, in Trondheim, and they were doing uh, research on brewers' yeast, and they reached out and. Uh, or actually, sorry, let me uh, flip that. He reached out to them after finding out that they were doing research on uh, uh, yeast genetics and said, hey, do you guys want to try and examine these things? You know, they come from uh, Norway, Finland, and, and Lithuania. And so he had, took his cultures over there to them, and they went through and they did a whole bunch of analysis to try and do sort of genome uh, genome structures and uh, genome family, try and figure out, okay, what of these cultures are related to each other. Uh, what particular style of yeast are they? Are they a Saccharomyces cerevisiae? Are they a mixed culture? Are they uh, this, that, and the other? And I think one of the, uh, the first funny things that should come as no surprise in the analysis was that his he says his first uh, feedback I got was pretty immediate. Uh, they wrote back saying, there are contaminants in these cultures. <laughs> I was like, yeah, there are bacteria yeah. in these cultures. <laughs> What do you expect when people have been keeping these things for hundreds of years? Yeah, and so, but they did some really cool stuff analyzing the growth rates and uh, how they metabolize certain things, and they did this genetic comparisons. And what was really kind of cool, and I think he said was, uh, when they did the phylogenetic tree, they were looking through trying to figure out, okay, what's most related? And he found some surprising things where, like, some of the Lithuanian ones were actually very closely related to strains that he wouldn't have expected them to be uh related to it all and you know found like oh yeah these three yeasts that come from this one valley are all very closely related to each other go figure so very very cool there uh really fun reading because it kind of helps tie into like okay you know what are these things like oh you know the fact like you know, there's saccharomyces bianus and pasturianus and cervasia and uh, Bilardi, you know all these sorts of strange yeast cultures that are just out, outside of our normal sac sea uh, so really cool to read. Uh, and what was great about it was, okay, hey, look, you know, we had this one thing, right? Uh, and it came up and uh, was fun to read. And, you know, kind of interesting to try and figure out, okay, how does lager yeast, the Saccharomyces bianus, end up somewhere in Norway? Uh, and at the same time, I'd been talking with 
Lauren, uh, Lauren from Quaff, and uh, he's actually just finished working on a paper for Cell with uh, the journal Cell uh, with a whole bunch of uh, co-authors. And Lauren uh, uh, had this paper produced, and we're going to uh, try and do an abstract and a summary that's more homebrew friendly. But uh, it's called Domestication and uh, Divergence of Saccharomyces cerevisiae beer yeast. And they went through and analyzed a ton of strains. Uh, uh, wow. I think it was, sounds... yeah, they, yeah, they did 24 different strains uh, in one test. They did a, another test with 157 strains. Uh, and they basically went through and just dropped a full sort of science bomb on these things and trying to figure out, okay, geography and relationships. And again, the same sort of thing. How are these related to each other? Uh, what was the phylogenetic pattern on them? Uh, how many, how many of these, how much genetic diversity do you see within yeast strains that are purportedly from, uh, Britain or Belgium or, you know, and then also some stuff uh, comparing it into say like wine yeast, uh, so really cool. Right now, the cell paper is this is a full fledged scientific, you know, paper, abstracts and all the all the sort of fun stuff and lots of dense terminology. And so we are uh, we are working on trying to make a summary of this because there is some really really cool stuff in here, and it would be really great to get it into uh, people's hands and sort of a a way that doesn't involve needing a biology degree in order to get through. <laughs> yeah, right. Something something that I can understand. Well, I don't want to go for the impossible. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, oh. well, um, we'll, we will definitely post a uh, link to Lars' study on our, uh, on our website, so you can go there and check it out for yourself. And as soon as we have the abstract of the cell paper, we'll get that up there for oh, you, too. We'll, we'll post the cell paper, too, because, I mean, let's face it, we have science nerds and geeks in this, in this podcast, and who knows, maybe some of you can help us understand it. <laughs> yeah, right. If you can make heads or tails of it, please let us know what's going on. So. Okay, well, uh, I guess it's uh, time to head over to the brewery and uh, talk about yeast a little bit more, huh? I know, it's a very yeasty day today, until we get to the experiment. Yeah, right, exactly. Okie doke, we're going to take a quick break here, and we will be right back to talk about Drew's Saison Yeast Tasting. Here we are in the brewery. Uh, brewing equipment is put away at the moment, so we can talk about Drew's Saison yeast tasting that he did live, live, live on the internet. Yeah, I thought I I just kind of did this on a whim, uh, sort of thought about it the night before and put it out there. And I, I had a bunch of people actually come uh, listen to me on Facebook and uh, watch the watch the talk later on YouTube. We put it up on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, no, really kind of fun. I just pointed camera at me and yabbered a little bit. But you guys remember back with uh, Brew with a Falcon, uh, put together a 15-gallon batch of my Saison Experimental uh, recipe, which is just a really plain, simple Saison. Uh, it's basically uh, Pilsner malt, wheat, and a little bit of sugar, and like one hop addition. So it's about as simple as it can get. 
And I pitched each of the portions with a different variant of uh, Saison yeast from the East Bay. You remember we talked to them a couple episodes back. I think it was like episode five. So more than a few episodes back now. Uh, and took these three yeast strains, Saison Blend 1, Saison Blend 2, and the Walloonian Farmhouse. And gave them all a go and tasted them live in front of everybody uh, to be able to talk about what flavors we were getting, or sorry, what flavors I was getting. Uh, I have to remember, I can't use the royal we with myself. <laughs> but what flavors I was getting and really kind of walk through and add some more data into the mix. And now I'm going off and I'm doing some more testing. But I thought this was a lot of fun uh, and people seem to respond fairly well to it. If you've got great ideas for something that you'd want to see us do, that's like a live video like this. Uh, you'll rarely see Denny and I together, uh, obviously, for physical separation reasons and restraining orders and that sort of stuff. Or maybe we're really the same person. And maybe. Maybe the voices have manifested in reality. <laughs> but if you guys have ideas for different things that you'd like to see us do live or in some sort of video, uh, let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And in the meanwhile, if you missed me talking about yeast on Facebook, we have archived it over to the uh, YouTube channel that we also run, which is Experimental Brew. And you can go watch it there and uh, see see what we did. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, why, don't, why don't you just real quickly uh, summarize what you found? Sure. So, all right, of the three. I uh, did a Saison blend number one, and I did all these with my usual protocol. I uh, had them in my 10-gallon corny kegs with uh, uh, open fermented uh, in a water bath, controlled the temperature of the water bath for the first couple of days, and then let them run. And I left them on the yeast for about a month. And so Saison blend number one, what it got back was, uh, I'll read you my description here, uh, initial nose of apple and cinnamon, lightly sulfurous to close out, as the beer uh, warms, it becomes an apple bomb. Spicy forefront with just a touch of corn. Uh, strong finish of herbal tea and cinnamon. Of the three tested, this was probably the closest to the classic sort of Saison profile that we think. And I also think that this one is one of the strains out there that would actually benefit from fermenting a little bit cooler than what I did. Uh, because I think if you ferment a little cooler, you get a little less of that apple ester. Saison mm -hmm. uh, blend two was uh, my reaction that was a clean nose that jumps into a very strong grapey winey sensation. So a grape or wine uh, that becomes blended with sandalwood. Uh, the hops actually popped out of that batch even more than any of the other ones, which is funny since it's really still only one hop addition. Uh, mouthfeel is luxurious, but it's not as gummy as say like a, a French Saison strain, like why use 3711 mm -hmm. finishes bright and really pops up with a straight, uh, clove cinnamon phenol to close out. Boy, that and just then, sounds uh, delicious. Oh, uh, yeah. It, it's my favorite of the three. Uh, and then the Walloonian Farmhouse. This one, actually, when I went and did the initial transfer, threw a lot of yeast on the initial pull uh, because, I again, I pressure rack out of the kegs. And it pulled, it pulled a lot of yeast initially, and I was a little worried but uh, that it was going to be still a yeasty mess above the, the initial pull. But uh, the initial hit on the nose is all tropical fruit. Uh, to me, the best way I can describe it is uh, hot, spicy, caramelized pineapple, like a pineapple upside-down cake. Wow. Uh, palate itself is bone dry with a very traditional sort of musty earthiness that hangs out through the beer. And then it's uh, finished with a little bit of tartness. The, this was the strain that 
really actually showed up a nice tart character. And so to my mind, the way I rank these, it's a Saison blend two, Balloonian farmhouse, Saison blend one. Uh, and just in terms players. of your preferences, right? This is yeah, totally in terms subjective. in terms of my preferences, uh, and but in reality, I would recommend all three of them because I think they gave really great characters. And it seems like you blended a couple of the beers together to try. Well, yeah, last minute addition to the idea was well, you know what? Since these are saison blend one and saison blend two, what's saison blend one plus two? Saison blend three. That's right. And <laughs> blended two of them together. Uh, blended the two of them together and tasted that. And what was really interesting was they kind of uh, merged with each other, merged with each other, and mellowed out some of the uh, some of the aspects I didn't like in the saison blend one. Uh, and I'll be truthful and frank: the reason why I didn't like saison blend one as much was that apple ester. Right. Right. And so blending the two together reduced the amount of apple ester, but it was still noticeable. Uh, but uh, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really good, but I still actually prefer Saison Blend 2 straight. And gotta say. Just because somebody is gonna come up with the bright idea, um, if you pitch both strains into a batch of beer, you won't end up with the same results as making two separate batches of beer, one with each strain and blending them later, right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't guess because you're gonna have different sort of uptake rigs and different yeah. reproductions and Yeah, yeah, you since we don't know what's in the uh, blends, you could possibly also be doubling up on a particular yeast string. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, it's a total crapshoot. So uh, if you're thinking it's a good deal or a good idea to uh, pitch both strains uh, into one fermenter uh, and you will achieve the same results that Drew got, uh, I don't think it's going to happen, guys. Uh, brew two batches, blend them in the glass, and hey, what the heck, you'll have twice as much beer that way too, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like that that approach, so totally do that. Yeah. Okay, it is now time to head over to the lab and talk about our upcoming experiment, and we are both really excited about this. We have some uh, some real big news about uh, developments here that uh, that are going to affect a lot of our experiments coming up. So we'll take a break and be right back from the lab. Hey, everybody, we are back and we are sitting in the lab and we have a really cool experiment coming up that we want to talk to you about. When I was in Yakima sitting in the sports center with uh, Gary Glass and Matt Bowling from the AHA, I asked Gary if he had any ideas for experiments we could do. One of the reasons I asked Gary about that is because we've just begun collaborating with the AHA and Zymergy magazine, and we're going to be doing a series of experiments coordinated with them. The results will get published in Zymergy, and uh, we're just we're just like really excited about this whole thing. So Gary said that one of the things he'd always wondered about was how accurate. IBU estimates are of your beer, uh, whether they come from software or a spreadsheet or whatever. Uh, this piqued our interest, uh, especially because of uh, our great sponsor, Nico Brew, who <laughs> sells hops. So basically, we have put together an experiment in conjunction with the AHA and Nico Brew, and we are going to be 
testing beers to see how accurate your hop estimates are. Basically, what's going to happen is that Nico is going to supply the hops to our Igors. Uh, We are going to have them and us, I guess, brewing uh, pale ale, IPA, and double IPA. All the hops will go through analysis at uh, YCH first so that we know that we have a real accurate number on uh, on IBUs, uh, alpha acids, beta acids, and hop storage index. We will then send these out to our Igors who will brew the beers, uh, send samples of the beers back to me. I'll take them to a lab to have the final beers analyzed. And we'll compare that with the estimates that come out of uh, various pieces of software and uh, see just how accurate uh, the software estimates of IBUs are. Uh, it's, I mean, it's going to be like so cool uh, to kind of get an idea of whether or not all this stuff we've been telling ourselves all these years really has any validity to it, huh? Yeah, and I I mean, I'm really excited about this experiment. Uh, obviously, our Igors are too. We, if you don't realize this, we pre-announced the experiments to the Igors to give them a chance to sign up and get ready and get moving. And I think we did that, what, two days ago? Yeah, right. And two days ago, and we already have 36 batches of beer signed up for, and that's actually going to be our cutoff limit. So we have the three recipes, and we have uh, 12 participants doing our basic pale ale, uh, 11 doing our basic IPA, and 13 doing our basic double IPA. And uh, we have a couple of groups doing multiples. So we have four brewers who have signed up to do all three uh, recipes, which will be great because it gives us a chance to say, okay, we've isolated out the the system variable, right? Right. This is the same equipment. So how how do these different IBU formulas look? when used on the same equipment. Uh, same thing with people doing a couple of people doing basic pale ale and IPA or basic pale ale and double IPA. So that we can also compare, okay, what happens with the same equipment and different gravities and different hopping rates. So now this is not going to be our traditional sort of triangle test sort of thing. This is actual just objective measurement type testing, but there will be a hedonistic component to the test. And what we're going to do is we're having our Igor send us enough beer so that Denny can take some of it to get assayed, take bottles for himself and bottles to ship to me so that we can then have people taste these and do rank t- uh, tastings. Basically say, okay, you have 11 beers in front of you. Rank these in order from most bitter to least bitter. Because one of the things I want to see is, is there... Is are, are we going to see a trend where IBU numbers actually match up to people's perceived bitterness? Because remember, IBU in terms of actual relation to perceptual bitterness is not really a thing. All IBU really is that number. It's a measurement of the amount of, uh, sorry, I was going to say the wrong thing. It's actually a measure of the absorption of the beer at 275 nanometers. And the idea is that it's a quick and dirty test to sort of tell how much isomerized alpha acid you have in the beer. But that doesn't actually really necessarily tie in to how bitter the beer itself tastes because there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. So what I'm really curious is if we start with the exact same lot of hops, which is one of the cool things that Nico's doing for us, he's going to give our Igors hops from the exact same lot stored in the exact same way as the lot that gets analyzed. So... Everybody has a known quantity in terms of their hops. 
If we do that, and then we have these things brewed on different systems, what do their IBUs come out as? And what does their perceived bitterness come out as? So that's one of the things I'm, I'm really curious about. Because for the most part, what we always tell people is choose a formula. You know, there are a couple of different formulas out there. The big ones that everybody probably uses are either uh, Rager or Tensith. They have different strengths, different weaknesses. And so we tell people just choose a formula, figure out what it is that you like. You know, if you know 35 IBUs on the Tensith scale is something that you like, now you've got that as a touchstone and you know exactly how to how to make your recipes for yourself. Um, it turns out like all the stuff about finding an IBU, it's a giant mess. It, <laughs> it is... Uh, it is, you look at like the actual formulas for this sort of stuff, and they are scary regression equations attempting to fit into a pool of data. And the guys who have done these will tell you that these formulas are really designed to work best with their particular brewing systems. So now we're going to see with a whole bunch of different brewing systems, how close some of these formulas get. So if you have some ideas or some suggestions to you know add into this experiment in terms of calculations or tastings, Feel free to reach out and touch uh, touch base with us, uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com or Igor at experimentalbrew.com, and let us know what you think and uh, offer any commentary. Like I said, we are out of signups for this particular experiment because, unfortunately, we can't quite get Nico to ship everybody hops in the entire world as much as he would like to. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, we, we are we are really looking forward to it. We should talk a little bit about the recipes so everybody knows what we're doing there. Uh, all three of the recipes are related to each other. They're all the exact same grain bill, just scaled differently. Uh, and the exact same hop loads scaled differently. So, for instance, the pale ale is calculated to come out at 1054, has 10 pounds of uh, two-row, one pound of Munich malt, and a half a pound of Crystal 60. And we're asking everybody to keep their uh, malt choices to domestics. Then the uh, hops are a 60-minute edition of CTZ, or Columbus Tomahawk Zeus, a uh, 10-minute edition of Centennial, and a 20-minute steep edition of Cascade. Right? Yeah. And optional dry hop, but we're asking people not to do that. Just using the uh, the Chico Ale complex, so uh, Y-East 1056, White Labs 001, or US05. And the difference between the Pale Ale and the IPA and the Double IPA is the amounts on those. The Double IPA also does get an addition of sugar, uh, since that's traditional in a Double IPA. But that's what we're doing, and this is going to be fun. Yeah, it, it is, and I think that it's going to test a, a number of things. Uh, number one, um, how accurate are your hot, are your IBU estimates when you brew a beer? Number two, as we've always said, there are things that you can measure and things that you can taste. So how do the measured IBUs compare to the perceived bitterness of the beer that, that you're drinking? And uh, number three, there's uh, some debate about uh, how boil gravity really affects hop utilization. So we'll kind of maybe get a handle on uh, on a little bit of that also. It's going to be a really interesting experiment. We're really, really excited to have the AHA getting involved with us. And we are extremely grateful to uh, Nico for providing the hops for all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is the sort of thing where our sponsors rock and uh, kick some butt. So, hey, uh, by all means, if you uh, interact with the AHA or if you interact with Nico, uh, please tell them that you uh, heard about them here on the podcast or that you appreciate their support of the podcast because that really does mean a lot. And an experiment like this doesn't happen without the without their help because 
uh, we can't afford that much hop. <laughs> yeah, and and we really appreciate uh, a- the AHA and Zymergy pairing up for this so that we can get the results out to a, a lot, a lot of people through Zymergy magazine. Yeah, absolutely. Okie doke. Well, I guess it's time for uh, us to shut up and listen to a couple interviews, huh? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm done talking for a little while. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back and we will be listening to info about the Whirlpool Vesey and Bainbridge Brewing. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time we talked about beer? So come on in. Come on in. Just come on in. Pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. beer All right, welcome back, kids. It's time to get into the interview segments. Uh, this week, uh, uncharacteristically for us, we actually have two. Uh, Denny uh, got a chance to talk to a couple of pairs of uh, some really interesting people. So uh, I think our first one, uh, Denny, why don't you set it up? Uh, you talked to an appliance manufacturer. Yeah, yeah. go figure. When, uh, when we were at HomebrewCon in Baltimore last summer, right around the corner from the Brewcraft booth where we were hanging out, Whirlpool had set up a booth. Now you go, Whirlpool? Washers? Dryers? Refrigerators? Well, they were showing an all-in-one fermentation and serving unit that they have just uh, started producing called the Vessi. They have started an Indiegogo funding campaign for it. The idea is that this is uh, an eight-gallon fermenter, uh, temperature-controlled, all kinds of snazzy features you'll hear them talking about in the interview, and it's kind of like mounted underneath this stainless steel table countertop, uh, and it has a tap attached to it, so you, you can actually ferment and serve from the same unit. A rather radical idea. I don't recall ever having seen anything like that before. They're really excited about it. They've put a lot of research and development and uh, customer testing into this. So uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to listen to a conversation I had with Noel Dolan and Ryan Murren from Whirlpool about the Vessi and how and where it's made. Hey everybody, this is Denny, and today we are talking to Noel Dolan and Ryan Murren from Whirlpool about uh, Whirlpool's new homebrewing equipment called the Vessi. Uh, hi guys, how are you today? Pretty good. Doing great. Great, thanks. Uh, so, Noel, why don't you go ahead and uh, describe Vessi for people? Um, so, Vessi is an eight-gallon, uh, basically it's an all-in-one system. It's a fermenter and dispenser. It's uh, an eight-gallon vessel that's designed to ferment uh, between five and six gallons worth of, uh, of work. And it is counter-height and counter-depth, so kind of imagine the size of a, a dishwasher. Right, right. Okay, and uh, so, Ryan, why don't you run down some of what are the, the really cool features you think about Vessi? Well, um, one, of the, one of the great things 
um, that differentiate us from from a lot of the competition is that um, one we ferment at whatever temperature that you want, um, anywhere between 80 degrees and 35 degrees F. And uh, one of the great things about that is it allows us or allows the consumer to um, ferment lagers, which uh, is a big obstacle for a lot of home brewers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, um, the other big uh, benefit to this product is that uh, the eight-gallon vessel that uh, Noel was talking about is actually a pressure vessel. So as you're fermenting, um, you can keep um, up to 30 pounds of CO2 that's created organically during the fermentation process. You can keep that in the vessel, and as you're fermenting, um, you're carbonating uh, your beer at the same time, which saves um, a lot of time on the back end and is, a, is, is definitely a quality benefit as well. Right. So those are, those are the two key uh, differentiating features that we're bringing to the market. So when you say uh, it's a quality benefit, uh, would you explain that a little bit more? So um, with with the bottle conditioning, you know, you're, you're reactivating the yeast in each bottle and it's creating... Um, it's creating that CO2 and carbonating just like we're doing in, in the Vessi. It just takes a bit longer and adds a bunch of time at the end. Um, but that the, the carbonation and the bubbles that you get out of a naturally, um, you know, carbonated beer, is, it's a little finer and it's a little, um, it's a little, uh, it's a better feel to the mouth than what, uh, what happens when you force carbonate, like when, if you were to do it in a, uh, a keg through pressurizing with the CO2 bottle. Mm-hmm. And so, and it ferments under pressure also, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, and, you know, one of the huge benefits is that, you know, you don't have to do any transferring of your wort from one carboy to another, uh, keeps it all in the same vessel, which, um, reduces the risk quite a bit from a cleaning standpoint and making sure that uh, you don't you don't expose your investment of time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears into something <laughs> that may uh, end up going bad because of uh, an unclean, unsatisfactory um, component that you're exposing to it. So we're, we're, we're providing the freshest beer that you can essentially have. Oh, that's great. And, uh, Noel, it's got a tap on it too, right? Yep. So we have a one of the one of the things we did as a go to market activity is we launched an Indiegogo campaign with this product and we did that because one of the main reasons we wanted to engage with the consumer early. So we heard feedback pretty early on that uh, they were not satisfied with the the faucet that we had planned to provide. So we actually are going to be upgrading that to a, a Perlick faucet. So um, so we're, we're we're listening to the consumer and trying to give them what they want. Cool. And so when you're serving, does it just use the pressure that's built up, or is there a way to hook an external CO2 tank to it? Or uh... So actually, um, we thought of that too. Uh, we wanted to make sure that as you're pulling, as you're pulling the beer from Vessi, where there's actually uh, capacity and a, and a spot that we have behind the product and inside the product to house a five-pound CO2 tank. And when the consumer gets the product, they'll get everything that they need um, except for the CO2 tank itself. So in other words, we'll provide the CO2 regulator to make it quick and easy for the consumer to just hook in whenever they, when they, they provide their own CO2 bottle. Very cool. So, 
so yeah, that, that, that assists in uh, as you're drying, um, as you're drying beer from the fermenter through the faucet or through one through bottling or kegging. Um, you know, we're providing that pressure to keep the uh, keep the pressure up and push everything out. Right, right. And one of the things that I was fascinated by that I read, and and tell me if I'm interpreting this correctly, is that you can actually dump yeast and trube without losing the pressurization. Yeah, so that's um, that's one of the exciting things. Another exciting thing about the product, we actually patented a concept that um, you know we've been getting a ton of really positive feedback on, where um, it's a, it's effectively a, um, a system where we can remove small um, small pockets of of uh, trub and yeast from the bottom. And it effectively ejects it out into a collection bottle that we have in the bottom of the system and allows the consumer to kind of manage, you know, it makes it as efficient as you can possibly be by um, just removing the solids from the beer and not the liquid. And it effectively separates it, pushes it out into a collection tank, and allows the consumer even to kind of um, hold on to any yeast that they might want to hold on to, too, and, and retrieve that and, and keep it for the next batch. That's that's really remarkable, man. It, just, it blows my mind that you can uh, you can do that without losing the pressurization. Uh, good on you. That's that's really great. So uh, so I'm, I'm reading that this was developed by, a, is it a division of Whirlpool, W Labs? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so actually this, idea originated, uh, we have an annual um, business case competition within Whirlpool where employees bring to light their ideas. And so this was the winner of our business case competition, uh, what would be now two, almost three years ago, um, where uh, the, guy, the guy we kind of um, highlight as our subject matter expert, Bob, Bob and, and some other members, uh, employees at Whirlpool, got together and put together a business plan. Um, and it, it was a little different than this specific Bessie fermenter, but it, it was in the space. It was, um, it was definitely an idea in this space and very similar to this product. So it won the competition. Um, so then that idea was given to the new business creation team, which lives within uh, WLab. So WLab is a, a building that sits separate from kind of mothership on Whirlpool's campus. And we're responsible for kind of new, new innovation, uh, new disruptive innovation, exploring new markets. So, um, so that idea came over here, and we've kind of spent the last year and a half bringing it to life. Cool. Uh, that's that's really neat to to see that there's a program like that 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 the, a large corporation would put on to uh, to really encourage innovation. You know. Definitely, we we continue to try to think of ways to even incorporate the you know, our, our customers even more in that process. So we want to figure out ways uh, that we can open it up to even be above and beyond our employees because there are a lot of great ideas out there. <laughs> That's great. And, and, and the, other, the other great thing about that is that while we're a, a building that sits, sits apart from, you know, the, the corporate whirlpool uh, that most people know, um, we, get to, we get to act like a startup, and we do that on a daily basis. But we also get the benefit of lever leveraging, you know, Whirlpool's um, world-class infrastructure to, to help us along the way and make things even faster. Yeah, I would imagine that there could be a lot of advantages to that. 
Uh, so um, when and where will the VESI be available? We're working through that. Our first, uh, our first launch was through the Indiegogo, as I mentioned before, and really to, for that we wanted to verify that there were, was a market out there. You know, do people actually want this product? Mm-hmm. And we wanted to engage early with the consumer to hear their feedback, and the answer was a resounding yes. Um, so we're continuing on to what, what now is kind of stage two, so we're in discussions with a couple of large online um, distributors to see if we could do some sort of partnership uh, with them. And then uh, from there, we've, we've earmarked Grand Rapids and Denver as two cities that we'd like to be in market, um, kind of, you know, feet on the ground, being able to, to understand better what is the purchase experience of the consumer going to be. And then we'd like to take all those learnings and, and apply them in a, in a broader sense if things continue to go well. So we're, um, we're trying to take this in stages and learn as we go and make sure we're giving uh, the consumers what they're asking for. Right. And in, in the meantime, if people are interested, they can uh, go to your Indiegogo page and take a look at it, yep. right? Yep. Cool. So right now it is available out there on Indiegogo. So if someone were to want it today, that's where they would uh, they would go purchase it. And then hopefully over the next six months, you'll start to see it pop up in, in other places. And we will definitely put a link to that on our website so that uh, people can find it that way too. So Awesome. Thank you. Oh, our pleasure. Believe me. What, what kind of uh, retail price are you targeting for the VESI? Um, you know, it's interesting. We've been to a couple conferences and, um, before we even tell people what the price is, after we walk everyone through what it could do, um, we'll say, you know, what would you pay for this or what do you think this should sell? And, and very frequently we hear somewhere between 2500 and 3000 So when we tell them the price point that we'd like to stay under 2000 it, it gets a really positive reaction. So right now you can go buy it on, online for 1899 Wow. Wow, really. And, so, you know, it, it, to me it, it strikes me as one of those things – that may not be for everybody, but for the people that 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 need it and have a place for it and have a budget for it, it looks like it's going to just be a killer piece of equipment. Yeah, we think so. And again, that's why we're kind of testing because we can sit in you know in the four walls of Whirlpool and think and think all we want, but until we get out there and really hear from the consumer, uh, you know, they need to verify that for us. But we believe that there's kind of two tests two types of people that would want this. And we, we actually named them after people uh, that are here and are at Whirlpool and, and Ryan's sitting in the room and we <laughs> named one after him. But the first target market we believe to be the Tonys of the world. And this is a guy that already homebrews. He already gets it. Um, he's not so much of a home brewer that he, he handmade his whole own process because those guys probably don't want our product. But he does homebrew. He sees our unit and he says, wow, I could get rid of some of my carboys, I could control it a little more, I, I'd have a little more confidence, I get what this does, um, so I'm interested. So we, we believe that that guy's interested, but we also believe that that group is a very small group of passionate, kind of active home brewers right now. I think there's a lot of people like Ryan that are beer enthusiasts that probably have brewed with their buddies before, but for some reason or another don't brew today. And this product may give them the confidence um, that, that they can do it on their own at home. Yeah, right. I I can see uh, for that group of people it being a, a perfect pairing with uh, you know some of the the newer, more automated systems that are coming out, like the Grainfather and the and the Zymatic. You know, uh, an easy way to make beer for busy people. Yeah. Right. 
so the location where W Lab sits, we call it the garage, and it's a, a long, narrow building, kind of like the size of a football field. And the back quarter is set aside for basically our tinker shop, and the engineers are always back there sawing and pounding and doing whatever they do. And we have six units, uh, six Bessie fermenters back there working at all times. So we have, on Fridays, we have brew days. We've invited some beer enthusiast employees of Whirlpool to, to spend the Friday and, and come and use our unit and help us understand, uh, you know, possibly it's, it's really great features that we're not doing a good job talking about and also features that could be better enhanced and blah, blah, blah. So we, we have a lot of beer coming in out of here right now. It's been a fun <laughs> place to be. You know, and I, I really admire uh, your use of uh, actual user testing and, and feedback on it. That's that's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah, we've learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So is there is there anything else you want people to know about the VESI? Um, I think one other thing we haven't touched on that's really powerful, and you could probably get the sense just from talking to us that it's important to engage our employees, it's important to hear their voice, it's important to hear from the consumer. But another thing about the VESI for men are, it's literally being hand-built in a micro factory that is uh, about 100 feet from our building. So we have a little space reserved um, in, in a building next to ours where uh, we are bending and building the first 2,000 uh, Vessi fermenters that we sell. So we're, we're trying to do a better job of capturing kind of the process and, and talking about the individuals that are ha- helping us bring this to life. But I think that's a fun fact that this Talk about American made. I mean, it's it's literally someone building it 100 feet from us. That, yeah, that, and I, that's, that's kind of where um, leveraging, you know, Big Whirlpool has really helped us out because we have a world-class, and, and when I say world-class, I mean truly world-class model shop that has um, all the equipment that you would need in order to make small-volume manufacturing. We've just never used it in that way. We've used it to make prototypes of, you know, refrigerators and washers and dryers right. and things like that. But now we're, we're using that to, to help us with the production and the learning of this new product. And, uh, and the quality, um, I think, is, is unmatched. So um, pretty excited. Everybody is pretty excited about this new opportunity that we're creating. Yeah, I saw one at, uh, at HomebrewCon in Baltimore, and man, what a sexy piece of equipment. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous. The build quality uh, was, you know, that's one of the things I look for coming from kind of a, a manufacturing background myself, and I was just totally impressed with how well put together it is. Yeah, we, we take a lot of pride in what we do here. Cool. All right, guys. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've been talking to Noel Dolan and Ryan Murren from Whirlpool about their new fermenter, the Vessi, and we will put a link on our website so you guys can check it out. Thanks a lot for joining us, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So uh, what do you think, guys? Pr- pretty interesting, huh? Uh, I think that one of the most interesting things was that they acknowledged this is not going to be for everybody, which is probably the first thing that you're thinking, because that was the first thing I thought, uh, you know, 2000 bucks and you have to drink the beer before you can use it again. Uh, although as they say, you can keg or bottle out of it also. Uh, but apparently they're doing really well with their Indiegogo campaign. And even though, I, I can't really see a use for this in my brewery. Let's face it, there are 1.2 million home brewers out there in the United States. 
So just because something may not work for me doesn't mean that it's not going to work for a lot of other people. Uh, it's a really cool piece of technology, and uh, I'm really interested to see when this comes to market what's going to happen with it. They are in talks with a major online retailer right now to get it marketed. So uh, hopefully in the next six months or so, there'll be some out there in the field and we can start getting reports from people about what they think about the VESI. Yeah, you know, I mean, to me, I mean, I'm I'm a home brewer, so I'm a little bit uh, on the uh, skinny side in terms of spending habits. Uh, but it is super, super slick. I will give them this. It is, it is pretty dang nifty. Um, obviously there are issues they know they have some sort of challenges and and whatnot with it but I think the other thing that is also really cool and is probably to me the bigger takeaway from the Vessi than just the Vessi was that was all the business about W Labs Uh, to me that is a sort of a radical shift in American manufacturing thinking and that's pretty cool just from a you know non-homebrew geek level uh, way of thinking about the world yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and I think that they have really spent a lot of time uh, getting feedback from potential customers about it. So, um, like I said, I'm, I'm real curious to see where this thing is going to go. I agree. All right, so now we've gotten done talking about the Vessi. Denny's got to rest his voice here for just a moment or two. It seems to be the old man voice is catching up. Uh, but to set this up, uh, Denny gets to go on the road a little bit because, well, you know, he's retired and doesn't have, you know, a job he has to go to. Uh, jerk and went up to uh, Seattle to go uh, do a book signing and uh, visit uh, Pico Brew and do a whole bunch of fun things. But one of the, one of the initial stops was over to Brainbridge Island, uh, which is uh, right near Seattle. And I uh, got to go talk to a very cool little brewery out that way. Denny, you want to set up anything? Is your voice back? Yeah. Yeah. I can talk now. Yeah. Um, Bainbridge Island, gorgeous place uh and they have this very cool brewery there uh bainbridge brewing uh founded by a guy named russell everett a uh, nice guy and uh, turns out he's an amazing brewer also with some really cool ideas that you'll hear about uh highly encourage you if you go up there stop by and uh, give them a visit they make some outstanding beers just outstanding so uh, rather than listen to me try to describe it, how about if we just sit back and listen to the interview and let Russell speak for himself? There we go. Let's do it. Hey, everybody. This is Denny, and I'm sitting here at the Bainbridge Island Brewery with uh, founder and brewer Russell Everett. Hi, Russell. How are you today, Hey, man? doing great. So, um, you know, just to get things off to a good start, we always ask people what their favorite curse word is. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Actually, mine's a little bit weird, uh, and it's technically Australian, yeah. uh, but we say the word chunder a lot around here. Uh, are, you, are you Australian? No, but I don't know. Somewhere, some years ago, I latched onto that word, so like whenever you got like all the, you know, troop at the bottom of a kettle or whatever, or like, chunder, you know, yeah. get that chunder out of there. Well, the reason I ask is back in the early 80s, I toured with an Australian New Zealand band called Split Ends, <laughs> and so I'm very familiar with the word chunder. Yeah, see, there we go. Have, have Worshipping the porcelain god. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, as, right. As, as mentioned in uh, Land Down Under, I believe. 
That's exactly right. <laughs> and I would let, I'll let you know, too, that obviously no one else has picked Chender I wouldn't so think far. so, yeah. And I'm not sure if it's actually a swear word uh, per se. Well, if, if you use it as we one. We use it a lot, and yeah, mostly like, oh, God, look at that Chunder. <laughs> Cool. So tell us a little bit about your background. When did you start brewing? Uh, yeah, my background. So uh, in 2001, uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Washington. And my then girlfriend, now wife of 11 years, uh, made a terrible mistake. And she bought my college roommate and I a Mr. Beer Kit. Uh, because I wasn't 21 yet and they wouldn't sell it to me. <laughs> uh, but she was, and so we made uh, we made our first batches of homebrew in the, this dingy little basement apartment in the U district, and it was awful beyond reason. Uh, it was really really bad. Uh, it was bad enough that my 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 roommate gave up and never brewed again. Uh, oh, no. But about a year later, I uh, I was like, hey, what if I got some actual like knowledge and proper equipment <laughs> and uh, good ingredients yeah so i popped over to uh, bob's homebrew out in the U district uh-huh. and uh, bob hooked me up and uh, the first batch came out of that was actually pretty darn good and so i just started homebrewing then so homebrewed all through undergrad and uh, then in 2005 i moved to miami and because my wife was uh going to grad school down there mm-hmm. and uh Got involved with the local homebrew club, and through that, I got a job as assistant brewer at uh, the Titanic Brewery in, in Miami for a little while while the, uh, the brewer broke his leg and needed help. <laughs> nice, man. Uh, so I got to learn a little bit of uh, playing on the big boy toys down there. Um, and then I quit that. I went to law school and became a lawyer. And then I graduated law school in 2009, and there were no jobs. And I was like, I got two skills. I can make beer or I can do law. Uh, And people are always going to drink. So (laughs) I started working on a business plan and uh, we opened the brewery in 2012. You know, you're the second lawyer I know who has become a brewer. Do you know Patrick Rue at the brewery? Uh, No, but there are others as well. Are there really? Yeah, we've talked about whether we should have a support group or something (laughs) like that. To get together for meetings. Uh, I would say that you'll probably get uh, a lot more popularity being a brewer than being a lawyer. Yeah, you get a totally different reaction. You walk up to someone like, hey, I'm Russell, I'm a lawyer. And they're like, "Uh, hey, I'm Russell, I'm a brewmaster. And they're like, hey, nice to meet you. Party time. Yeah, my new friend. So when did you discover good beer? What was the the first really good beer you remember? Um, Without in any way condoning uh, the underage consumption of, of alcohol, course. Uh, of course. Uh, there's a photo of me downing a Budweiser at about three years old, I think, uh, <laughs> at a wedding somewhere in a little, in a little tuxedo. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I mean, I grew up um, here on Bainbridge Island, and you know, in the Seattle area. And uh, I think having decent craft beer around is almost like a birthright now for <laughs> us up right. here, uh, in a way that it isn't for a lot of other parts of the country. Um, so, yeah, it just, it was, it's like your default mode of thinking. Like, you know, you're in college and like, you're going to get some beer and it's like, oh, I don't have a lot of money, but, you know, I'll spring for that red hook instead of, you know, that Keystone light or whatever. Is there one, <laughs> is there one beer in particular you can remember that really made you go, wow, I got to do this? Um, you know, I have a few over the years. The first keg I ever legally bought uh, on the morning of my 21st birthday was uh, a 
a keg of Elysian's Immortal IPA. Whoa, good way to start. Yeah, that was that was the party. That was the party beer, and we drank it all day long. Uh, eventually, someone rode a bike down the stairs. It was a, it was a good party. Um, but I have just memories of you know that that was sort of your baseline, right? Like, yeah, right. And uh, so I've had a long, long love with. Some of the like real classics, like uh, Pyramid Snowcap. Oh yeah, I just, man, that's one of my. Favorites. I just love that beer, um, and I have just for. I mean, back when I was an undergrad and I had a lot of money, it was like sweet. It's seven percent alcohol and like reasonably affordable and tastes good. Like, yeah, I'm all about this. Uh, and since then, I've kind of grown to appreciate some of its other qualities and uh, model of, our winter ale. After one that. of the first recipes I ever remember coming up with on my own was for. Uh, my own kind of try at Snowcap. Yeah. You know, because my wife and I both just love that beer so much. No, absolutely. I, I think the first proper batch, non-Mr. Mr. Beer Kit batch of homebrew I ever did was a winter warmer type beer that uh, Bob had put up in his homebrew shop. And that was, <laughs> I think, the first the first batch I ever did in 2003-ish. Wow. Like that. So, okay, here's, here's the tough question that all the brewers hate. Oh. Describe your brewing philosophy uh, without using the word balance. God, don't <laughs> Good. Ah, good question. Yeah. Well, and most people, most people just kind of dance around trying to think of another way to say yes. balance. But, uh, uh, you know. No, that's a that's actually a really good question because I think um, even when people talk about being, you know, extreme, like there's balance involved, right? Like, yeah. Right. So for me, it's um, clean or cleanliness. Like um, I have a real thing about like fermentation defects. Like you know, I can, and I can um, tell from this beer. I, I, should, I have I a should, really big thing about clarity. Yeah, uh, I, I, am, I can see that. <laughs> I, and I, I want to mention that we're sitting here drinking an India Pale Kolsch. Is that what you call yeah, it? Yeah, the IPK India Pale Kolsch. So this is a this is a. Kolsch. You use Kolsch yeast, I assume? Yeah, we use uh, Kolsch yeast and Weirman Pilsner and uh, ferment it nice and cool, and then it gets lagered and it gets filtered. And you said it was hopped with Amarillo and Sterling? And Mosaic. And Mosaic. Yeah, this is kind of a weird little hybrid. I wanted to make something for summer. and uh, I mean, this is a delicious beer. It is crystal clear. It is clean as, as anything can be, man. Ah, cheers to that. Really, really <laughs> a gorgeous, gorgeous beer that I'm enjoying immensely. Uh, so, yeah. so basically, then, what you want to do is not have anything get in the way of the ingredients you put in there. I just uh, I like to have a, a, a thorough and, and clean ferment. I like it to not have any you know byproducts that showed that it struggled in any way, whether right. it's diacetyl or acetaldehyde or anything like that. Or um, I have a personal crusade against cloudy beers so all you i guess out on the east coast that uh, are digging oh. your you know juicy vermont ipas well uh they're they're terrible and you're terrible oh uh, you nah, know um I'm just, it's interesting i'm just kidding yeah well no i, I, <laughs> I understand because i have pretty much the same theory uh, yeah. I, I had a friend who sent me uh, 10 northeast ipas and i put a review of them up on our website yeah um and 
people didn't seem to like what I had to say. Yeah. But what was interesting was that there were a few of those that were crystal clear, very clean and straightforward. Yeah. So no, just, it's, it's, it's all in good fun, right? Like, I like that we can, we can have different styles. And, and, you know, clarity is one of those things that people sort of underestimate as a style characteristic. I mean, and, and I like it. I mean, I didn't find that the haze added anything to these beers. Yeah. But... I mean, I'm, you know, on the other hand, it's nice that there's something for everybody out yeah. there. I'm okay with a little bit of chill haze if that's, you know, if particularly the polyphenol haze from dry hopping or something like that. Sure. Like, that's fine. That just, you know, that happens. Um, it's when you get yeast and, you get, and when you get a brewery that's serving you a glass of a, that's like a milkshake and it's, yeah. it's yeast or, or it's dry hops that they just sucked up when they were racking. And uh, that's just that's just shoddy workmanship right there. Come on. Yeah, that's what I've found about some of the ones I've tried is that the, there's so much whatever particulate matter in there causing that haze that there's kind of a grittiness in the mouthfeel. Yeah, you, know? you get that. And then, I mean, all those yeast cells are all going to die in that keg and then it's, you know, start getting all weird and hot doggy as they so, autolyze. Just let me say, for those of you out there who like it, <laughs> that's fine. Drink them. I am not advocating you should. Yeah. I, well, just, just, I, think, I think one of the things that, you know, it's interesting to, to pay attention to is, as both a pro brewer and a home brewer is like the different kinds of haze, right? Like, yeah. um, and recognizing that there are different kinds of hazes. Like, you know, I mean, everyone thinks, you know, Hefeweizen should be super hazy from the yeast. And well, the yeast is a part of it, but really it's more about protein haze from the, all that wheat in there. From the wheat in there, yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, just because, you know, haze is okay doesn't mean that, like, yeast chunder is okay. You know, well, so we're using the chunder word again. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, you know, and again, and again, I just, I have not found that it adds anything to my enjoyment yeah. of the beer. Uh, no, other people feel differently, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah. I mean, those yeast will grab onto to hop oils and stuff like that. And so it, it, it changes the flavor, but it drastically shortens the shelf life, too. So, I mean, you've really got to drink a lot yeah. of that stuff when it's new. So is there one beer in particular you find yourself longing to drink? I mean, when you sit back and think about, boy, I would like to have a... What would oh, it be? like style or, or, or a just brand? Or anything, just anything, either one. Yeah, it's one of those, like, uh, when, you, when you're a brewer and you've got, you know, we, we keep 12 taps running at any given time and we produce about two dozen different beers over the course of a year. It's, I'm, I'm always kind of drinking a little bit of everything just to make sure right. everything is okay. But my tastes do change. Like, I go, I go to kind of off the hops for a while and then I'll go back on them. And, um, and for me, it's, it's funny. Like, um, I think you get this probably out of a lot of professional brewers. Um, so one time, like a year or two ago, uh, we were at the, the hot, the hot mob road show, the, the triple IPA thing uh -huh. that uh, happens up here in Seattle every year where everyone brews triple IPAs and, and puts them all on. We were at Brower's, um, and I looked out over the crowd, the place was packed and hopping. Everyone's drinking triple IPAs. And you could absolutely tell who all the brewers were because all of them were drinking Belton's Pilsner. <laughs> like we're at a triple IPA thing and all the brewers are drinking Pilsner. Uh, and I think that you sort of gravitate towards a really well-made, clean, refreshing, reasonable alcohol beer. And that's what, so like our Kolsch, like people ask me like, which of your, which of your beers is your favorite? And I'm like, ah, oh, you're making me pick amongst my children. But uh, right. the one I drink the most of is absolutely our Kolsch. Like that's, it's clean, it's nice, it's what I want end of the day right when i just got to get up and do it again you know yeah that's it's truly amazing i mean i kind of went through the same evolution you know starting off with all dark beers mm -hmm. you know and very high alcohol and then i kind of discovered that the light beers are more of a challenge to brew because there's no From, place yeah, to hide no. and start doing those and now i mean it's like 
if I have a choice, I'll take a German Pilsner over almost anything. Oh, because it's hard. Day. Like for me, it's yeah, it's it's one of those things. Like um, you know, people ask like, why aren't craft brewers making more lagers? And why, you know, and one, it's you know, I can flip a an, two ales in the time it takes me to, nice. to really properly do a lager. So it's it's a tank space thing, um, and also it's hard, right? So you got to be able to do it, or you know, yeah. you're going to make a real lackluster lager and. That's that's true, man. You have to absolutely do it yeah. right. We've made, I think we've made three loggers ever uh, here, just because our compromise is our Kolsch, which is we treat like a lager. It gets a, a longer ferment, colder, and right. um, it's you know specific and appropriate yeast. Um, so we kind of get a lot of those flavors by going that route. Um, but every now and then I do like to kick out a lager just like to, cause it's hard, like to prove I can, right? Yeah, like, right. So we exactly. like make an Oktoberfest cause it's hard. Or um, our third anniversary ale was a, um, a whiskey barrel aged Doppelbach. Oh man, Cause that I was like, well, what a craft lager, brewers never do like lagers. What do they never, really never do? Like big lagers. What do they really, really never do? Put them in a barrel. So, <laughs> so that's what, uh, that's what we do. did for our third anniversary. Um, and so that was fun. I mean, I was sitting there spending like, I was in that tank for eight weeks or something. Wow. I was just swear, swearing, like, I need my tank back. <laughs> um, Gotta make some money. Yeah, here. I was sitting there going, like, you know, it'd be really nice if I could make some IPA right now. But uh, <laughs> but it was fun. It was totally worth it just because it was, it's a, it's the challenge, right? Like, you got to do stuff that's love of the game. Exactly, man. Well, not only, I mean, it keeps your customers interested and it keeps you interested. Yeah, exactly. Totally. You know? I mean, I, you know, I can't make IPA all the time. Even though sometimes it feels like that's what we do. <laughs> so uh, kind of get back to this uh, this IPK. Yeah. As it warms up, I'm really getting the yeast character coming out. I'm getting a little bit of that fruitiness. Yeah, a little what's, fruity. What's the what are the coal yeast that you use? Uh, we're, we are using, right now it's uh, White Lab's uh, coal strain there, whatever that is, 29 or whatever. Uh, okay. Which is, it's, not, it's a good yeast. It's cooperative. Um, it flocculates reasonably well, so you can harvest it reasonably well. And uh, but it also stays in suspension long enough to kind of get the job done. Right. The, and, the uh, fruity notes in it play really nicely with those hops. Yeah, you know? I get a I get a weird like watermelony bubblegum thing out of there, which I'm not entirely sure if that's something coming out of the mosaic or if it's something coming out of the the, the yeast. I'm, I'm digging it. Like it's when the first time we uh, we drank it after it had been filtered it was like what is that yeah i mean it, it works with without all that hopping it could almost yeah. be too much you know so almost, it, there's almost a little bit of like a, a sake uh, yeah like right. a like a perfumey um, and i get a little bit of like a, a jalapeno thing i think that might also be uh like a little a little like, vegetable like a sort of thing a little green pepper, thing. green pepper yeah. thing and uh, that could be probably uh maybe those mosaics they can be a little bit could be a little bit could so what is the most unusual beery thing you've done? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I don't know if you know about uh, Strange Brewfest in Port Townsend. Uh, right? I actually, uh, I do know about it because I was invited to go this year, but I couldn't make it. All right, well, I highly suggest you and anyone listening, go, go, absolutely. Uh, it's my favorite beer festival of the year. Um, it's in Port Townsend, Washington, in the, the last weekend in January every year. Um, and it's insane. Uh, they basically challenge all the brewers just to make whatever they want, and it wow. has to be weird. Uh, so I've spent four years of going to this thing now trying to win it, and we finally did win the strangest beer last, uh, last uh, right in January this year. Um, really? So so, and, and what was it? So uh, it was a beer we called... Uh, how are you with... Yeah, well, actually, if you just ask me what my favorite swear word is. Uh, so we called it... It, let's go to Strange Brew. Uh, so like, 
but spelled like uh, Phuket, Thailand. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. Uh, so it's Phuket, let's go to Strange Brew. Uh, so then people spent the whole time ordering a f*** it, uh, which was cool. Um, That's great. But we, we took our Eagle Harbor IPA, our year-round IPA, and I made a, a Thai-infused simple syrup with mm-hmm. uh, ginger and galangal and lemongrass and uh, palm sugar and lime juice. And, um, made this really, really potent simple syrup. So we got a spike of that. So I threw a lot of those like Thai tropical flavors in there. Um, and then I took our stout and mixed it with some agar, uh, wow. heated it up, and then used a, a syringe to shoot it into six-foot lengths of silicon tubing, and then dunked it in an ice bath, and then used a, I jerry-rigged our air compressor to make like an air gun, and uh, so we just hooked it up and just hit it with compressed air, and it shot out these six-foot-long gelled beer noodles. Um, they were literally just stout and agar. Uh, and it made these these crazy noodles. Uh, so you got noodles in your glass that were literally just beer, and then we garnished it with some cilantro, and then I put a bottle of uh, sriracha out there. You could, <gasps> you could spice it. I think that Drew and I have just lost the title of weirdest yeah. beer ever. Uh, it's, garnish is important. That's one thing I learned uh, I learned at Strange Brew. Uh, we, made, we made a beer that was brewed with squid ink one year. Um... That's the first place where I was sitting there. It was, I come up with my best ideas in the shower. And so I was standing in the shower one day thinking about um, alternate sources of starch for a beer. And I was thinking about corn. And I was like, all right, we could do like a, some sort of cream ale kind of thing. And I was like, well, where can I get corn? And I was thinking like, well, you know, corn has to be pre-gelatinized before you can use it. So you have to cook it. You can do like cereal mash. And then I was like, well, if I use pre-cooked corn, where can get... I was like, oh, I could just use tortilla chips. And then I was like, I could use Doritos. <laughs> So we uh, we made a, a yeah we made a beer called Beeritos. It's uh, we made it every year now because people demand it. Uh, wow. It's thirty three percent Cool Ranch Doritos. Does that does the Cool we, Ranch flavor come through? Yeah, we made we made nacho cheese one year and it just wasn't as good. And if you think about it, like nacho cheese is sort of a generic kind of cheesy, crunchy, right. salty, and it's more about the more about the salt and the texture for that. Right. Whereas, like, nothing tastes like Cool Ranch Doritos. No, but that's Cool true. Ranch Doritos. Like, ranch doesn't taste like Cool Ranch <laughs> no, Doritos. No, no, like, They don't taste like anything in the yeah, natural it's, world. It's a super specific flavor, and it really comes through. Uh, surprisingly, comes through. And they um, went into the mash, I assume? So, yeah, we just basically just put... I go to Safeway and, like, unload the entire aisle of, like, party bags of Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, last year, the, the Frito-Lay, like, reps were there, like, stocking the shelves. And I just, like, walked in and, like, unloaded it. <laughs> and they looked over, like, what What are you doing? Having a hell of a party. They were like, well, someone likes Doritos. And I told, I told them what I was doing with it. I thought that was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, ju- it's literally just, like, some two-row, you know, base malt and Doritos and a little bit of, I think, a little bit of acid malt just to adjust pH. Right. Um, and then, yeah, a little bit of Cascade, and that's it. Wow. It's a little cream ale, and uh, we garnish it with a Dorito on top because, again, garnish is important, right? <laughs> you know, Drew and I uh, made a uh, clam chowder saison a couple of years <laughs> oh, yeah, ago. Yeah, that's on my alley. Uh, yeah, I'll have to send you the recipe <laughs> for it because I think you could really do it justice. But I think you may have come up with weirder <laughs> shit than we did. Yeah. I didn't think there was much weirder. We, I actually have a picture of John Palmer pouring potato flakes into the mash. Oh. He, 
I was on my way to Brazil and I stopped and Drew and I were going down there to yeah. speak. So I stopped in Pasadena <laughs> at his place to brew and Palmer came over to help us. So I have this picture of him pouring the mashed potatoes into the Ooh, mash with the clam chowder yeah. saison. And uh, that's going to be uh, blackmail material. I was going to say, that seems like a, a bit of a texture nightmare. I can imagine it being. Uh, it, was it, it actually was worked it sort out, of thick? It, it worked out surprisingly well. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> considering we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's advice to anyone. Like, if think about, like, think about the, the reason why you're adding something to beer, right? Why do we add corn, right? Well, because we can get, you know, eventually we can get those starches to turn into sugars that we can make beer out yeah. of, right? So what are alternate sources, right? And that's, that's what I always say to people who are saying, well, is this too many ingredients? Is this not enough ingredients? It's like, use whatever you want <laughs> to make the beer you want. Just be yep. sure that you know why it's there and you can justify why you're using yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You know? And if you don't know why something's in a recipe, like, why, why are you putting it in there? Exactly. So, so do the research because there's probably a good reason it's in there. <laughs> well, there may be a good you know? reason it's in there or it could just be that somebody went, oh, hell, let's yeah. try some of this and see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it's, you know, trying to cover for, you know, it's interesting too, and when you get homebrew recipes scaled down from from big brewer recipes, like you know some of the process stuff results in like you know we can't all do double decoctions or anything, right? Then that's what your melanoid molds for. Right? Put some of that in there. That's right, man. So, um, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you when you're brewing? Oh, um, let's see, home brewing or professionally or just either, ever? Either way. Um, God, the worst. There've been some real doozies over the years. Um, I think the worst, like from a funny perspective, is uh, I used to homebrew with a friend of mine when I was back living in Miami, and uh, eventually we were just—I mean, we were both in the same homebrew club, or officers in the club, and, and uh, you know, both equally, you know, fine homebrewers in our own rights. But we eventually like had to stop brewing together because it was like chaos and, and madness. Uh, so we were doing a. a I think a double IPA, like a 10-gallon double IPA, and I was using a 10-gallon igloo as the mash ton, and we were brewing outside because it's Miami. And right. um, so we mashed in, and then I think we were already like four or five pints into it by that point, right? And this is the real reason we had to stop yeah. brewing together. Uh, but we, uh, we picked up the propane tank and realized we were really low on propane, so we're like, we got to go get some propane. So there's a gas station nearby. So we go to go get propane, come back. And we go to start sparging, and uh, there's no liquid in the mash tun at all. Uh, we had just left the the drain valve open, and it just drained like through my deck, and the entire like first wort just flushed away to nothing. Oh no! So we just gave up and uh, popped open a nice Belgian triple or something <laughs> we had, and just continued drinking. Um, you, but, you didn't like just go ahead with the sparge and make like a like a bitter or something. Like yeah, that. it was like we, we we were in like we could totally do like a mild if we sort of remash it, and then we were just like at that point we're like nah. <laughs> yeah, this is a disaster. So what what common wisdom that comes with brewing do you think is like wrong or or overinflated? Oh yeah. Um. I think that uh, a lot of homebrewers overdo it, overthink it, because um, a lot of the things that have come down to homebrewing over the years have been sort of what has come out of our sort of macro lager tradition, right? Like, you know, we think about like a herm system or a rim system or something like that, right? Like, when you have a mash tun the size of a swimming pool, you, you know, have to do certain right. things to try and keep it a little bit more even um, in a way that isn't exactly that much of a problem for it. 10 gallon pot 
right. know, that you could, you know, stir with a spoon or, you know. So so you think that a lot of homebrewers kind of overcomplicate I mean, things? We, well, it's this your tendency whenever you have any hobby, right, is to sort of like, some people are gearheads. It's like it's like genetic, right? right? Some people just, you know, it's the, those are the guys with the, the $4,000 racing bikes that take them out four times a year, right? Like... And every now and then you get someone who totally like needs that bike and goes out all the time on it, and good for them. Um, but there's a lot of people that overthink it, and they're just like, "I need to have this to make better beer." And the reality is, like, no, you just need you need to understand how to clean things, you need to understand how to sanitize things, and know that those are different things. And then you need to control the temperature, and that's ninety percent of the way to making perfectly good that's beer. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I just did my five hundred and second batch in the same <laughs> cooler that I've been using for nineteen years. Wow. You know, and it's like I don't feel any need to upgrade to something fancier. Yeah. For, for number five hundred, a friend of mine, Kevin Apico Brew, came yeah. down to join me for batch number huh? five hundred. And you know, I'm, we get about halfway through the brew, and I said, "So, what do you think of my brewing style?" He goes, "It's more primitive than I imagined." <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And, and that's true. It, it is compared to a lot of people's, but I don't need anything more to make good beer. And the most important thing is I enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's it's a hobby, and if you're not having fun, then you're doing yeah, it wrong. If you want to, to, if you're an electrical engineer or you got buddies who are, and you want to totally rig up a PID controlled, you know, with mash rakes and all this stuff for your ten gallon potter, but like, cool, do it. Like yeah. that's that's fun, right? Like that, the equipment is like half the fun sometimes, right? But just don't stress about that. Like it's not going to make the beer appreciably better to the point. No, Where what's going to make the, the beer... The joy of making the equipment is, you know, not worthwhile. Like, yeah, what's going to make the beer better is yeah. your attention and thought process. Yeah, and it's the same thing with, you know, people that stress about, should I add, you know, one ounce of this or one and a half ounces of this yeah. or one and a quarter ounces of this, and it's like, like nah, just <laughs> chill out, try it, it'll be fine. Like, cool. So, um, what interesting discovery have you made about the brewing process uh, or you think something um, you just paid enough attention to one thing that like one thing that took me a really 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 long time to learn was the importance of your base malts um i think as homebrewers we tend to we tend to start out with the idea that like your two row or whatever is an interchangeable scaffold that mm-hmm. you just build the beer on and all the flavor comes from that 15, 20% of roasted, caramelized, you know, whatever you're putting in there. Um, and I think everyone should, like, do some either single malt, single hot beers, like smash beers, really appreciate the differences between the different maltsters and the different roast levels of those base malts, right? Um, and, like, and the simplicity of it and realize that, like, you know, you can use crystal malt as a crutch. Like, uh, you, don't, you don't need as much as you think you do if you've got... You know, a reasonably good base malt and good fermentation practices and right. stuff like that. You, people tend to overdo that kind of stuff because they're not thinking about, you know, how much flavor they're getting. Um, same thing with uh, the aroma you get out of, you know, quote unquote bittering hops. Right. Like, you know, the, the quick and dirty assumption is, you know, you put hops in the beginning, you get bitterness. You put them in the middle, you get sort of some bitterness and some flavor. And, you know, you put them in the end, you mostly get... Here at the brewery, we basically don't do kettle additions anymore, uh, like mid boil. Um, right. we, we do either first wort hopping or, or ni- you know, 60, 90 minute like bittering additions, and then a whirlpool addition. Because mm-hmm. here, you know, on a pro scale, like we have a whirlpool, you know, the, the, the hops are typically spending 75 minutes or so between, um, you know, kettle off and being in the tank. 
So there, we have a, a sort of steep process. So that's something that happens on big brewer, you know, bigger systems that doesn't happen on a home scale necessarily. Right. So kettle hopping makes more sense. But if you do a really simple beer, like a really clean little pilsner or or a pale, you know, um, you know something something light and reasonably simple, and only do a bittering addition, you'll get a surprising amount of aroma. Like people think it all boils off, and it doesn't. I learned this making my you know test batches of my Kolsch. Right. Um, just a little bit of a decent bittering hop, you, you will get hop aroma, you know, through ninety minutes. Yeah, I know, and and it's it's one of those things that once you start looking for it and testing it you can find it but the conventional wisdom is yeah. just conventional wisdom. oh it all just evaporates and you yeah. no like it, you know most uh, really low hop you know lager type things have you know, they have one edition and then usually an edition near the end right right so tying in with that what are some of your favorite ingredients in terms of malts oh, hops and yeast yeah um I'm a really big fan of Weyermann's malts for, for German things. So we use a lot of their Pilsner, um, a lot of their Vienna. Um, their wheat is fantastic. Um, I, turn, I tend to prefer local ingredients if I can get them. Uh, but I also tend to prefer better ingredients. Uh, yeah, so I, it's, that, it's that balance between, like, I'll, I'll use local until I find something that so knocks it out of the water. that. Um, so, for example, we used to use... Um, uh, Great Western Maltings, Crystal 40, uh, mm-hmm. a lot. And uh, one time I, uh, I got to try some samples of uh, Simpsons, uh, British, uh, Crystal Light, Crystal Dark. And it's like night and day. Like You just eat, eat, eat kernels of both of them side by side. And, you know, it's painfully clear which one you want to use. <laughs> one tastes like cardboard and one tastes like raisins and caramels and all kinds of other stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the Simpsons Crystal Malts. Um, we use a lot of Great Western's Northwest Pale Ale Malt. Yeah. That's a really nice, affordable, quality base malt. Um, I'm not a big fan of, like, two-row pale. I think it's just boring. Like I, so like right. I said, like, when you're working on uh, your base malts, um, it's a layer of flavor that you can ignore if you go for something that doesn't taste like anything. So I just here's a little thing. I've, I've been playing around with a couple new malts lately. Mm-hmm. One was from Great Western. It's their Sacra malt. Yeah, that's Sacra, that Sacra 50. Yeah. I got exactly. to eat some. I haven't gotten to brew with it because uh, I guess it's a little bit in short supply, but I'm trying to get a sack to play with. They, yeah. They I promised I, me one. That's what I just did. <laughs> it, it's kind of like a cross between Crystal and Munich. It's, it's yeah. real, real nice. And the other one uh, that uh, that they've started carrying, a brewcraft at least, uh, is a uh, Wofford family Irish ale malt. Oh, yeah. The, I, I ran into it at CBC. I met James Lawford, who mm-hmm. runs the farm. It's like sixth generation family barley farm, yeah. you know, in Ireland. And their ale malt, they make an ale malt and a stout malt. Haven't tried the stout malt. I've heard good things about that stout malt. I, 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 I crunched some kernels one time, but I haven't brewed it. The diastatic power on the stout malt is 260. Whoa. Can you believe that? Yeah. I mean, that'll convert anything yeah, in, exactly. in there like, with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's. You know? So how about hops and yeast? Any favorites there? Uh, yeast. Uh, so like I said, I, I lived in Miami. I brewed in Miami for, for years. Um, I used to have the problem of, at that time, you know, the mid-2000s, uh, the closest homebrew shop was basically in Orlando. Um, and uh, so anytime I ordered anything, like, it would have to come in a UPS truck in the middle of Miami summer. And more than once, I got a, a I got a dead pitch of liquid yeast. Um, so I started keeping uh, packets of uh, Saf Ale, um, the 04, the 05. They're mm-hmm. British, they're American dry yeast. 
I'm a big fan. Like I really dig the 05. It's it's cheap. It's shelf stable. It performs well. It's easy to harvest. Um, right. It's a really like nice workhorse yeast, and it's dry. Um, so at the very least, like keep a packet in your fridge. So if anything goes awry ever, you can just like bust Always. it out. You know, you got a batch of Belgian that the yeast just isn't doing anything. Just Slap an American in there and make a different That's beer. That's right. At least thing you end up with some kind it's, of beer. Uh, yeah, it's I always it's it's an emergency backup if nothing else. I, I uh, agree, man. I always have some around. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that strain a lot. I like the uh, White Labs Kolsch um, over the the White East Kolsch. I think it flocks better. Um, that that's very interesting. Yeah, it's we used to use. I like the flavor of the the White East uh, Kolsches. Uh, we used to use the Kolsch two strain. Um, and then it, it was like a special order kind of deal. We had to give them a few weeks notice so they could grow some up. And um, so one time they just didn't, we needed it like yesterday and they only had Kolsch one. So we got a pitch of the Kolsch one in and tried them side by side. And we liked both of them. And so we just started using the Kolsch one because it was more readily available. Um, but then I tried the White, uh, white Labs and it flocks a lot, lot better. Um, so it makes a cleaner beer. Um, yeah, right. And exactly. And that's special. Yeah. I mean, if you've got time to, to lager it for a really long time or if you can filter it, then that's fine. Right. Um, but uh, that cold strain is a little bit powdery. So um, what's something that you wish more people would, would drink or explore? Oh. A style? A yeah, style-wise. Um, you know, we've been talking about a lot about lagers. And I think, uh, you know... I'm a big fan of our Kolsch and things like that. I think that that kind of stuff gets a little bit, uh, I don't know, written off as, as boring or, or as, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill. Um, or I think, like, they actually, you can really appreciate it on an artistic level if you kind of think about it. Um, <laughs> that's that's a really good way to think about it, too, Yeah, man. it's in the way that, like, I mean, like, you know, people people badmouth, you know, Budweiser or whatever. Um, but I, like, I as a professional, like, I appreciate it on a... On a industrial level like on, as, as on a process level <laughs> like I appreciate what went into it even if like what went into it is terribly boring so um, in any other general brewing thoughts is there's like there's some one piece of knowledge you wanted to pass along <laughs> to other brewers yeah one, um, one, one piece of advice a piece of advice uh, that's a good question um, I think you know Temperature control is, is big, and that's a big thing I, I, I take really seriously here. We, we fermentation fermentation control, um, proper cold storage, um, those are really huge. Uh, oxygen is your mortal enemy once uh, once that wort <laughs> hits, hits yeast. Uh, so, um, you know, if you can get a CO2 tank and, and purge carboys and, and, you know, you've got a beer gun, a little Blickman beer gun, you're filling bottles, you can really give it a balls a good purge. That's just going to make your beer better. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Last question: What non-beer thing are you fascinated with or obsessed by? Ooh, obsessed by um, something has nothing to do with beer. Wait, when you're not thinking about <laughs> what beer. Do I, what do I do when I'm not thinking about beer? Yeah. Um, I do a lot of foraging uh, and a lot of a lot of foraging and, and fishing and, and like wildcrafting and stuff. So uh, like this afternoon, as soon as we're done with this interview, I'm gonna go check my crab pots out off the island. And, uh, oh, I am so jealous. Yeah, probably do a little bit of salmon fishing, even though it's really early in the season. But, uh, Man, yeah. Uh, well, it's the benefits of living on an island, right? Like, well, uh, yeah. What's the point of what's the point of living here if I can't, you know, take 
take full measure of the forests and the sea. Dungeness crab has to be one of the best reasons to live in the Pacific Northwest. Oh yes, and uh, we definitely stock up uh, during the season to the point where like we just like crabbed out, like totally, totally crabbed out. Uh, I, I can't even imagine that. I've never, I've never quite uh, reached that point. Yeah. I think we caught eighty last year. Oh, uh, yeah. So <laughs> wow, that's so, amazing. Yeah, one time we had a. Uh, we had a particularly good day on the boat. I had some friends with me, so we had like we caught three or four limits. I mean, that's like fifteen Dungeness crabs, and uh, so. Uh, so okay, um, well, yeah. uh, Russell, thank you so much, man, for taking your time today. I just yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for stopping by. Wow. It's my pleasure because your beer is great, and it's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, so. cheers. Cool, man. Thanks. <laughs> That was my conversation with Russell Everett at Bainbridge Brewing on Bainbridge Island, uh, just uh, across the sound from Seattle. Uh, some really, really interesting ideas. I love the uh, the corn chips in the beer idea. Uh, I love his uh, Thai beer idea. I mean, this guy can actually come up with strange ideas that sound appealing to me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know. Maybe it's exposure to me. <laughs> Could be. That's it. That's that's the story that I'm going to uh, sell everybody, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. Okay. Drew has warped my mind, and I can actually maybe appreciate weird beers. Uh, Yay! One one other little side note: Should you uh, go up there and stop by the brewery, walk across the parking lot to the Bainbridge Organic Distillery and have some of the most amazing whiskey that you will ever put in your mouth. Some of it uh, aged in barrels made from 200-year-old Japanese oak trees, and uh, a real story behind that, too, that I won't bother you with right now. But uh, well, you're gonna have to bother us. You're gonna have to bother us with it at some point. Okay, okay. Here it goes. So uh, it turns out the Bainbridge Island has one of the uh, oldest Japanese settlements in the United States, uh, and they are in the process of restoring and excavating it. In order to help them raise funds to do that, uh, Bainbridge Brewery jumped through all kinds of legal and diplomatic hoops to be able to ship in this 200-year-old Japanese oak and have barrels made from it that they could age their whiskey in. Uh, They were telling me that because of the age of it, the wood is quite porous and the first few batches of whiskey they put in these barrels just pretty much ran right back out again. They've figured out a way to seal the barrels, and uh, they are now aging the whiskey in it. The whiskey sells, brace yourself, for $500 a bottle. Now, <laughs> yeah, but $400 of every bottle goes as a fundraiser to the Japanese Village Restoration Project. So, uh you know, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's they're they're not just uh, not not just raking in the cash on their own. Now, I'm not much of a whiskey drinker. I, I haven't had a lot in my life, but uh, the owner of the distillery offered us a taste of this whiskey, and all I can say is, if whiskey tastes like this, I'm going to start drinking it all the time. <laughs> it was freaking amazing. It was smooth and rich touch of fruitiness to it even that uh, that comes from the barrels just just outstanding so um at, at any rate go see russell at uh, bainbridge brewing and uh, take a walk across the parking lot to the organic distillery also while you're up there 
Man, if you get into that sort of whiskey, you're going to have to dip into your retirement funds a lot faster than you thought you were going to. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, should I ever buy a bottle of that whiskey, I think I will be uh, drinking it by the uh, drop until it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Just one drop. Yeah, right. So uh, I guess now it's uh, time for things other than beer, huh? Yeah. So, you know, remember, people, it's not all just about beer. It's just mostly about beer. Uh, but I wanted to mention a couple things uh, this week because, hey, it's our show and I can break the rules about how many things we talk about. First, I think we have to totally talk about Gene Wilder. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Proving again that 2016 is still sucking uh, that we lost Gene Wilder. Right. Uh, and that that actually really made me sad because I have very, very, very fond memories of both Blazing Saddles and Dr. Frankenstein. Our freaking mascot is named Dr. Igor Stein. That's right. You know, I mean, come on. So I just I just watched Young Frankenstein on television last night. Turner Classics was showing it. Well, and I just discovered that my wife has never actually seen the original Willy Wonka movie with Gene oh, no. Wilder. So, like, totally queuing it up on the DVR so that we can go, we are watching this because we can. So, so uh, what's your favorite Gene Wilder movie? If you had to pick one. Uh, <laughs> as a kid, it would have been Willy Wonka. These days, it's probably Blazing Saddles. Or the Cisco Kid. I, I gotta go with the producers, man. Uh, well, I, yeah. You know, uh, I have never seen anybody manage to be as absolutely frantic in a hysterical way as Gene Wilder was in that movie. Well, the, the one thing I will say about uh, Blazing Saddles, though, yeah. is I don't think you could get away with making Blazing Saddles today. Oh, no, obviously not. And, you know, there's a, a, a great interview that Gene Wilder did with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and it's available as a podcast. I, I listened to it when I was driving up to uh, Yakima, and there's a, a wealth of really interesting info in it, but uh, he addresses that very issue in it. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, there you go. One of the world's greatest comedies, one of the world's greatest comedic actors. And yeah, you're totally right. The thing that I think he could express better than anybody else uh, in a movie or in any performance was really that sort of endearing anxiety that made you want to kind of just like the guy <laughs> while he was making you laugh. Hug him and tell him to calm down. Yeah, exactly. Except for then you would have missed out on all the comedy. That's true. So what else you got for us? All right. I promise myself I'm only going to do one other thing, uh, but eh, no, screw it. I'm doing two. Uh, second one, uh, the artist Sia, uh, S-I-A. If you have been following her all, she originally came to fame probably for doing a lot of lead vocals for the uh, EDM band Zero Seven, you know, sort of chill down tempo type stuff, uh, and then branched out and went back to being a solo artist and kind of floundered around for a couple of years and then decided, eh, I'm done being a performer and became uh, a songwriter and wrote a bunch, bunch of pop songs that, that you know from Katy Perry and Rihanna and all sorts of people and was almost completely out of the business and just doing that and not being a performer anymore because she didn't want the hassle of it. And when she accidentally got one of her songs released by one of the artists who used her demo uh, vocals for the final song, uh, Titanium, and that spurred her career back into, into the limelight. And then she released uh, Chandelier and a couple of other big songs a couple of years ago and absolutely amazing uh, kind of comeback, but then also partnered up with 
uh, Maddie Ziegler, who is a dancer who is best known for being one of the few breakout stars of Dance Moms, a reality show. I hate the fact that I know this, but... uh, (laughs) I I was sitting here kind of stunned. Yeah. Well, just this week, as we're recording this, uh, Sia released a brand new uh, song from her next album, and it's called The Greatest. And before she released the the song as just the song, she released a video on, uh, on her YouTube channel. YouTube's back. Um, and it features Maddie Ziegler in it. And the whole video is a, um, allegory and sort of retelling of the, or sort of a memorial, I guess, of the pulse nightclub shooting that happened in Orlando a couple months ago. And, I mean, the song itself is great, but then you watch the video and the video going with it and you watch uh, Maddie's dancing in it and the 49 other dancers to symbolize the 49 other uh, 49 victims of the shooting. And man, if you don't walk away from that feeling gut punched, um, I don't know how you can do that because it was, it's just, yeah, I mean, you can hear you, you can hear me kind of having trouble expressing it, but it's just a thing and you should totally go see it. Cool. And, and so what was number three here? Uh, number three, just to bring it back up <laughs> you know, from really, two, sort of like, bum me out. Yeah. Sorry. I'll, I'll have another beer and cheer up. Uh, number three is actually something that I discovered a couple months back, uh, comiXology. And I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast. Comixology is owned by Amazon and it is a online digital comic store comic books and everything else, graphic novels, however you want to take your, your, your funny picture drawings with, you know, words behind them. And I used to, I used to read all the superhero comics. I was always a big Batman fan and uh, Alan Moore fan, Uh, but I got out of it because who needs that much paper laying around your house? Well, now that I've discovered comiXology, I'm literally going and buying comic books and downloading them to my Kindle and enjoying them. But like serious adult, type uh, comic books and it is freaking awesome because it kind of gets you right back into some of that, you know, easy brain enjoyment space. Uh, and so a couple of things I've been reading caught up on uh, a couple of really big award winners, uh, saga from, uh, Brian K. Vaughn, a uh, hundred bullets, which is a really kind of twisty little comic, uh, catching up on amulet and a couple of other things out there, but I really, you go on to comiXology. If you think of something that you want to, you want to read, it's there and you can get it in your hands within seconds. It's awesome. And I keep wondering when the hell you have time to read comics. I don't sleep. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that part. Okay. I've got the quick tip this week, and this is for all you guys out there growing your own hops. It's harvest time now. And I'm going to tell you what I learned that greatly improved the quality of my own homegrown hops, and that is dry them hot, people. Now, you see uh, recommendations all the time to uh, dry your hops by putting them on screens in your garage or something like that. And I grew hops for, oh, 15 years or so before I finally gave it up. And I tried a number of different drying techniques, uh, like like putting them on the screen in the garage, stuff like that. When I went to hop and brew school for the first time three years ago, what I learned is that hops will actually start composting themselves within an hour after picking, 
And what the hop growers do is they dry them at about 130 degrees, uh, and then they will be dry in anywhere from three to six hours. It's actually down from the 150 degrees that they used to dry them at. But the idea is that by drying them hotter, you produce certain favorable changes in the oils and you keep the hops a lot fresher and you preserve a lot more of those oils. So there you go, kids. Go get yourselves a food dehydrator or some other way to dry your hops at about 130 degrees. Keep an eye on them. They could be done in as short a time as three hours. And don't dry them cooler than that because you're just kind of wasting a lot of the effort that you put into growing them. What do you think about that? I, I think that's interesting because, yeah, I've, I'm used to thinking of uh, go get a box fan, go get a couple of AC vent screens, right? Or AC filters. Right. Sure. Lay your hops out in there, tie them all together, put them on the box fan and let it go. I'm just trying to think how you could combine that with the heated air. And of course, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because the hot post itself runs hot. Yeah, right. Um, uh, I, I got I got to tell you, uh, oast is an outdated term. They are kills now. Well, there you go. Fine, whatever. <laughs> I, I like the word oast. Oast, uh, oast is a wonderful word. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> if only the buildings themselves existed. Yeah. But uh, so I'm just trying to think on a homebrew scale, what would be the best way to do that? Food like, to dehydrator. Food dehydrator. But the food dehydrator, but also get the, the airflow, right? Because I mean, a hop kiln has a pretty, pretty good I, my, airflow. Through, my, right? my food dehydrator has a fan in it too. Oh, well. There you go. I'm used to the I'm used to the old fashioned ones. They're just static. You're right. el- electric element. The, the, the other tip is if you're using a dehydrator, you know you have a bunch of trays stacked up there. Rotate the position of those trays every once in a while, which will kind of emulate what the hop growers do too. Because what happens is the ones on the bottom get drier than the ones on the top. So you want to keep moving around to uh, to uh, get even drying throughout. So there There you you go. go. A little bit of wisdom from hop school passed on to all of you. And speaking of hops, the question of the week is, are you ready for the hop experiment results? Are you ready to find out just how accurate your estimates of the IBUs in your beer are? Going to be real interesting. Stick around. I would say that we'll have results. Oh, geez. It'll probably be at least a month, huh? It'll probably be about two months, I think. Yeah, right. That's just what I'm thinking. So, okay, Mr. Beecham, it's it's time for your quick recap. All right. So, what did we talk about this week? Oh my God, we talked about a lot. Uh, looking back through the, the through the little script here, uh, we went through some people's uh, other staling experiments, uh, experiments in quotes. Uh, I think uh, staling experiences. Uh, we talked about hop school. We talked about the California law update. We talked about more sellouts because that's the way of the world right now. We talked a couple of really great actual scientifically you know, driven articles about yeast genetics and yeast relationships. Uh, we walked through our Saison tasting uh, that I did, uh, which, by the way, reminder, tell us what other things you want us to do on video. We'll do them. Uh, then, of course, we really covered the hell. I have a great hop experiment that's coming to you courtesy of the AHA. Don't forget to download their new Brew Guru app. And our other sponsor, the one who's providing us all the hops to make the magic happen, Nico Brew of NicoBrew.com. Uh, then we talked a couple of interviews. We talked with W Labs about their Whirlpool Vessi. And we talked to Bainbridge Island Brewing Company, or sorry, Bainbridge Brewing on Bainbridge Island. 
we gave you a couple of something other than beers that may or may not be a little downerish, but at least we closed off with some comic books. And then Denny dropped some hop knowledge on you in terms of quick tipping. And hey, don't forget, uh, next episode is our Q&A episode. So if you have a question, get us your question at questions at experimentalbrew.com, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Hit us up on Facebook. Find us wherever you can. If you have a question, let us know. We'll do our best to answer it. That's right. And thanks a bunch, you guys, for listening to this episode of Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. Uh, Drew is on Reddit. I'm on uh, a whole bunch of other beer forums out there. Look around. We're there. You can find us. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, you can email me at denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until the next episode, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.